0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. New York, this is Democracy Now!
1: Are you ready, Georgia? I'm ready! Stand up for workers! Stand up for women! Stand up for our children!
0: Incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock has defeated Republican Herschel Walker in Georgia's closely watched runoff election, giving the Democrats control of 51 seats in the next Congress. We'll go to Georgia for the latest. Then, death by policy, crisis in the Arizona desert.
2: The Blue Armadillos say the number of people who reach out asking for help to find their missing loved ones is often just overwhelming.
0: A new investigation by Futuro Media shows how U.S. border policies have created a deadly funnel forcing migrants seeking refuge into some of the deadliest terrain in the country, including the Sonoran Desert in southern Arizona. And then USA versus Garcia Luna, Mexico's former secretary of public security, will soon become the highest ranking Mexican official ever to face trial in the United States. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock has won re-election, defeating Republican Herschel Walker in Georgia's closely watched runoff.
1: It, It is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken.
0: With over 95% of the votes counted, Warnock received 51.4% of the vote to Trump-backed Walker's 48.6%. During his victory speech, Senator Warnock also warned voter suppression remains a major threat. Raphael Warnock becomes Georgia's first black full-term senator and increases Democrats' Senate majority to 51. After headlines, we'll go to Atlanta to speak with Latasha Brown, co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund. The Trump Organization was found guilty on all 17 counts, including criminal tax fraud, conspiracy, and falsifying business records. The damning verdict comes after a three-year investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. The conviction centered on Trump Org providing lavish perks to its executives, including luxury apartments, cars, and cash bonuses without paying taxes on any of these over a 15-year period. Former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg— Pleaded guilty in August to financial crimes, prosecutors say Trump signed off on the tax fraud, though the former president was not charged in the case. Trump and his children are still facing a separate civil fraud suit by New York Attorney General Letitia James. The House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection says it'll make criminal referrals to the Justice Department. It's not known whether Trump will be one of them. The committee is expected to release its final report by Christmas. In related news, lawmakers gathered in the Capitol Rotunda Tuesday to award congressional gold medals to the Capitol Police and the D.C. Metropolitan Police for their actions on January 6th. This is chief of the D.C. Metropolitan Police, Robert Conti.
1: Many of us still carry the physical, mental, and emotional scars after that mob of thousands launched a violent assault in an attempt to halt the counting of electoral ballots. The sound of metal poles and other objects striking the bodies, helmets, and shields may still ring loudly.
0: During the ceremony, the family of deceased officer Brian Sicknick refused to shake hands with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy or Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell. Sicknick had two strokes and died one day after the January 6th attack. The special counsel investigating Trump sent grand jury subpoenas to officials in Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, asking for any communications with the former president, his campaign and his associates. Special counsel Jack Smith was appointed last month by Attorney General Merrick Garland to lead probes into Donald Trump's role in the Capitol insurrection, as well as whether Trump mishandled classified materials. The Supreme Court is hearing arguments today in Moore versus Harper, a pivotal election case which legal experts warn could upend the electoral process in the United States and threaten democracy. The case centers on the independent state legislature theory and seeks to hand state legislatures near total authority in voting issues, overriding courts, governors, and state constitutions. The case was brought by North Carolina Republican lawmakers after State courts struck down their illegally gerrymandered congressional maps. A federal judge sentenced Michael Avenatti to 14 years in prison, ordered him to pay $11 million in restitution for stealing millions of dollars from his clients and obstructing the IRS's efforts to collect taxes on his business. Avenatti, best known for representing adult film star Stormy Daniels in her case against Trump, is already serving a five-year sentence for two other convictions. Prosecutors say Avenatti stole from his clients to pay for personal luxuries, including a private jet. In international news, German law enforcement arrested 25 people earlier today, suspected of plotting to overthrow the German government. The suspects are said to belong to a far-right domestic terror group called Reich Citizens that believes Germany is controlled by a deep state. Plans included attacking the Reichstag, Germany's parliament building. China announced major changes to its COVID-19 policy, easing some of its most stringent rules, including allowing mild or asymptomatic cases to isolate at home instead of a centralized quarantine site. It also rolls back testing requirements and the use of a contact tracing QR system that people had to scan in order to enter most public places. The changes come after rare public protests against the government's zero COVID rules. In Argentina, Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner has been convicted on corruption charges sentenced to six years in prison. Kirchner, who served two terms as president of Argentina, was also given a lifetime ban from holding public office. Kirchner has denied any wrongdoing and is expected to appeal. Her supporters took to the streets to denounce Tuesday's verdict.
3: They changed the military for corrupt judges. The judges serve the concentrated powers of the economy. Today, we are in the streets to free Christina and to end with the lawfare within our country.
0: Indonesia's parliament passed a sweeping new criminal code that bans extramarital sex for anyone living in or even visiting Indonesia. LGBTQ people are especially at risk since same-sex marriage is illegal in Indonesia. The criminal code also punishes anyone who insults the president or expresses opinions that diverge from the national ideology. On Tuesday, protesters gathered in front of the parliament in Jakarta.
3: The government should focus on fulfilling people's civil rights, the economy and culture, such as job vacancies, health care and etc. They should have passed laws related to that. Instead, they passed a law that is not democratic, controls our private lives and does not take care of public matters. It is a setback for our country, which has fought for reform and now we are moving backwards.
0: Back in the United States, a federal judge in Washington, D.C., has dismissed a lawsuit against Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, filed by an advocacy group and the fiancé of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered in 2018. The judge cited the Biden administration's granting of sovereign immunity to bin Salman in the lawsuit, despite the crown prince and now Saudi prime minister admitting the murder took place, quote, under my watch. To see our interviews on this subject, go to democracynow.org. In Colorado, prosecutors charged the suspect in last month's mass shooting at the LGBTQ nightclub Club Q, with 305 criminal counts, including hate crimes and murder. Five people were killed in the massacre, 17 others injured. San Francisco's Board of Supervisors voted Tuesday to ban police from using killer robots. The vote reverses a decision made by the board just last week to allow the explosives-laden robots to be deployed, which was met with outrage from residents and rights advocates. San Francisco police will still be able to use the robots in some non-lethal situations. Washington, D.C. is set to become the most populous city in the country to offer free bus rides starting July 1st after the D.C. Council voted for the measure Tuesday. The bill also invests millions more in D.C.'s bus system and adds overnight service on 12 routes. A final vote on the measure will take place later this month. And in Montreal, Canada, the U.N. Biodiversity Conference, COP15, kicked off this week with a stark warning from U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres
4: with our bottomless appetite for unchecked and unequal economic growth, humanity has become a weapon of mass extinction. We are treating nature like a toilet, and ultimately we are committing suicide by proxy. Because the loss of nature and biodiversity comes with a steep human cost, a cost we measure in lost jobs, hunger, diseases, and deaths,
0: Indigenous and environmental activists disrupted a speech by the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau holding up a banner that read, Indigenous genocide equals ecos- ecocide. To save biodiversity, stop invading our lands, it said. Meanwhile, a new report by Friends of the Earth reveals corporate interests have steered the writing of the Convention on Biological Diversity and International Conservation Treaty. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan.
4: Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
0: Well, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock has made history by defeating Republican Herschel Walker in Georgia's closely-watched Senate runoff. Warnock's victory gives the Democrats control of 51 seats in the next Senate. Warnock becomes the first black senator to be elected to a full six-year term in Georgia. He received 51.4 percent of the vote to Walker's 48.6 percent. Senator Raphael Warnock addressed supporters in Atlanta last night.
1: Now, there are those who will look at the outcome of this race and say that, yes, you're right, we won. But there are those who would look at the outcome of this race and say that there's no voter suppression in Georgia. Let me be clear. Just because people endured long lines that wrapped around buildings some blocks long, just because they endured the rain and the cold and all kinds of tricks in order to vote It doesn't mean that voter suppression does not exist, it simply means that you the people have decided that your voices will not be silenced.
0: Senator Raphael Warnock speaking after defeating Republican NFL star Herschel Walker in Georgia's closely-watched Senate runoff. Senator Warnock was raised in public housing in Savannah, Georgia. He was the 11th of 12 children, the first in his family to go to college. He first rose to national prominence as the senior pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, which was the spiritual home of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., When Reverend Warnock was first elected in 2021, he became the first black Democrat ever to represent a Southern state, as well as the first black senator from Georgia and just the 11th black senator in U.S. history. Warnock's victory marked a major defeat. For former President Donald Trump, who'd handpicked Herschel Walker, a former football star who had no political experience, Walker became the eighth Trump-backed Senate candidate to lose this year, a year in which the Republicans had expected to regain control of the Senate. Herschel Walker conceded to Raphael Warnock last night.
1: I want you to believe in America and continue to believe in the Constitution and believe in our elected officials, most of all. Continue to pray for them because all the prayers you've given me, I felt those prayers.
0: We go now to Atlanta, Georgia, where we're joined by Latasha Brown, co founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund. Latasha, thanks so much for rejoining us on Democracy Now! If you can Talk about the significance of um, Senator Raphael Warnock, Reverend Raphael Warnock's victory last night, and the lessons
5: learned— you know, I think that there is. I'm still actually. In, I'm so excited and happy about the outcome of that election. I think there are a number of things. One, I think just historically that here it is a full. He has a full six-year term to serve in the Senate. An African American male from a state that what we that we know historically that black men and women have actually been killed just for trying to register to vote. A state that has been on the forefront of literally leading voter suppression in a myriad of ways and even intensifying that in the last few years. So I think that it has a historical significance around the fight to vote. Um, particularly in the African-American community. I also think that it has a significance because it has a national political ap- uh, implications, that what we know is now the Democrats have 51 seats, which means that now they actually have freedom around, far more freedom and um, space in terms of a committee appointments to be able to actually get judges through, to be able to get appointments through, and I think even put pressure on, on folks like Cinema and Manchin who have actually stood in the way of certain legislation particularly like voting rights legislation to get through and so i think that that has a that will have a significant impact you know on the national policy that goes forward that the democrats are actually pushing the third thing that it does is i think that it reaffirms a particular model of what we've been saying all the while, you know, that at what we saw is we saw voter suppression. I want people to understand that yes, while we saw record turnout, we also saw long lines. And while there was an indicator that people were voting, it was, the fact of the matter is people were staying in line for two and three hours. That should not be the case, but that is a result of the voter suppression. That when we look at what has happened from the 2021 election, where Warnock was Senator Warnock was first uh, elected for that special election, What we know is that literally you know, there were eight, we had eight and a half, almost nine weeks of early voting that got truncated until four weeks. So you only had four weeks of early voting, which actually intensified what groups on the ground had to do to make sure people had the information. And then to add insult to injury in the state of Georgia, where you've got the constitutional officer who is supposed to be the it's supposed to manage the electoral process, the secretary of state, his responsibility is to actually give information to voters to be able to engage in a process and literally encourage voters, citizens to participate in the political process. He actually sued not wanting to try to literally not want um, to have a Saturday voting opportunity for the voters in the state. So instead of literally taking the job of really expanding the opportunity and making sure that voters would actually participate, instead, he wanted us to observe a Confederate holiday so that voters would not come out. And it was because— I mean, would not have the opportunity to vote. And it was because of the Warnock campaign and several other plaintiffs that filed a lawsuit that literally the judge ruled in their favor that opened up Saturday voting. And that weekend wound up being one of the largest voting turnout weekends in the history, in the runoff election in the history of Georgia, because there was a genuine need. So those are just some of the things that I think that happened historically in this campaign that what you also see. And I think this is the most critical piece. Part of what people should really recognize is that Warnock was able to get the, L, um, the LGBTQ community. He was able to get progressive whites. Um, he was able to get independence. He was able to get um, AAPI, the Latinos, uh, um, African Americans. He was the indigenous people. He had a broad-based coalition and in many ways a nuanced message to each of those constituencies. That is the future of Georgia. That is what the America that we desire, we deserve, That's America. that's what America looks like, and I think it gives a message that in terms of going forward, the Democratic Party is going to have to literally um, like just hunker down and be able to speak to those different constituency groups in a way that we're moving forward with coalition politics.
4: And Latasha Brown, I wanted to ask you, this was certainly a victory against uh, voter suppression, but at the same time, it was also one of the most expensive Senate races in U.S. history. There's uh, estimates by Open Secret that more than $380 million were spent uh, between the campaigns and that Warnock had a a significant uh, lead in the spending. So is the message here also, uh, can you talk about the influence of money still in our electoral process and will all of candidates seeking to uh, beat back voter suppression have to come up with this kind of money to be able to win?
5: You know that is just not sustainable. The bottom line is, in this particular case, yes. You know what we know is Warnock did have a large war chest, right? And while that was, I think that that has has had it went to play and made a difference. You know, early on in the campaign, early on in the midterms, groups like mine and others, grassroots organizations that also did a tremendous part of the heavy lift in this election, were saying that the resources were not on the ground. That while we need to ha- actually have an air war, there need to be a, a ground war. And I do think that that's something that as we reflect and going forward and as the Democrats reflect going forward, I think that's a real consideration that ultimately it's going to it's it's going to bump up against um, a bump up against some issues around making sure that, that different communities are engaged. The second thing is, to your point. It is just unrealistic and unsustainable. It is obnoxious the amount of resources that are being spent on these political campaigns. That's why I think we need um, a cam- a ele- we need campaign reform, right? So that we can literally that it should not be who wins, who has the most money. It's who who literally is engaging the most people, who has um, the heart and the mind to actually shape policy and are going to. Um, really, uh, really be able to speak to the people. In this particular case, yes, he was able to have money, and I certainly think that the money helped. Um, I certainly think that it actually helped to push him over the edge. But I would also say that really it was the people that ultimately, in this particular case, he had the best of of, of multiple worlds. He had the traditional kind of, of of financial backing that you would have as a, and and more so than most Democratic candidates would have, right? And then what he also had is he actually had this infrastructure. That was literally outside of his campaign that wanted to see him win badly and that we used and leveraged our resources, our time and our energy to make sure that we actually pushed to get voters out so that voters could have make a choice. And we thought that the choice would be clear that once they got to the polls, people knew exactly what to do and they knew the kind of leadership. But this is a larger question around as we go forward, the need for campaign finance reform.
4: And I wanted to ask you uh Herschel Walker, his opponent, was handpicked by Donald Trump and was really the candidate of the MAGA Republican, uh, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Your sense of what this says about uh, Trump's uh, power within the Republican Party, and also what it may may signal for his uh, his uh, presidential run in 2024.
5: You know, I think it's a really good question. I actually think it's a much more complicated question. You know, I would love to say, oh, we've beat Trump and that's it. I, I can't say that. At the end of the day, yes, we beat Trump. Yes, I think that he comes out again. We're going to do everything to beat him again. But the truth of the matter is the fact that Herschel Walker, a candidate, right, who was a one of the weakest candidates I've ever known in my history, in, in the history of doing these elections, who was handpicked, plopped out of t- picked out of Texas, placed in Georgia. He even had the audacity to file his taxes in the midst of this campaign that actually where he said that for the last 17 years he's been living in Texas. He's a resident of Texas. Someone who literally was so disconnected from his own community and so disconnected from the plight of what African Americans are actually experiencing right now that he minimized racism. He actually referred to himself as a a negative racial um, slur that had been used against African Americans for years in the deep south where he called himself he actually embraced this notion of being called a coon that here's someone that with all of those all of that baggage someone who literally his own family came out against him said that he had not raised his children that he had a domestic violence abuse that the abortion we can go on and on and on the fact that there was only a hundred thousand vote difference between these two candidates who were starkly different Also speaks to something too. I think it speaks to that we cannot take for granted that this is just a traditional elections, that we're gonna have traditional elections where oh it's a a Democratic candidate and Republican candidate and which candidate that we'll get that we're far beyond, that we have to also recognize that we are still fighting the big lie, that we have to also recognize that we're still fighting voter suppression, that we're still fighting fascism, that at the end of the day, that when you can just take a candidate out of nowhere that is the weakest candidate that we've seen and be able to garner over 1.7 7 million voters, right, that in itself should also be a red flag for us and we should not take lightly or take for granted that, that Trump will not be a factor in the upcoming, in the presidential election.
0: Latasha Brown, it's interesting that Herschel Walker, despite all the scandals around him, actually conceded defeat immediately last night, something that um, his main supporter, Donald Trump, would not do and uh, embrace the Constitution, uh, Trump, in the last few days, saying the Constitution of the United States should be thrown out. But I wanted to ask you about this issue of voter suppression and whether the Republicans' attempts to stop voting—and clearly many people were disenfranchised. It's just a testament to the advocacy on the ground to get people out to vote. It made it all the more um, amazing. Uh, whether Republicans are now reconsidering two things. One is this kind of voter suppression because it actually galvanizes people. And two, Democrats had it hands down when it came to this record early voting, something Republicans tend not to do. They vote on Election Day. Aren't they reconsidering all of this? And how will your
5: tactics change as well? You know, I can't tell you what they're reconsidering because I think they've made some uh, really critical mistakes. Part of what they constantly have been doing, and we've seen this in the last, and, and particularly in the last, in the most recent elections, they have an, a tendency to believe that if they cheat, if they put voter suppression tactics in, in place that in some way we're just going to get, uh, uh we will get dejected from the process and not engage. You know, I've also seen where they've actually planted these narratives, like the narrative that Black men were not going to vote in this election. They were so, they were so upset with the Democratic Party when we actually saw the reverse happen in Georgia. We saw that literally right behind Black women were Black men in terms of their support um, of the Democratic ticket. I think that they should consider it, whether they consider it or not, I'm not sure, the fact that they have made some major mistakes, the fact that they ran Dr. Oz, the fact that they ran Herschel Walker, the fact that they have act- they're have they actually still um, a, 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 a sizable a part of the party still supports Trump, says that there is some disconnect from the reality. I think that in some ways they're blinded by raw power and have decided by any means necessary, if they have to cheat, steal, whatever they need to do to undermine the process, they're willing to do that. They should reconsider because what we've seen over and over again is that there is also a backlash, that they constantly underestimate the power of voters, of new voters, that there there has been a shift. They they are unwilling to accept that the political landscape that they have been used to has forever changed. And when you look in Georgia, the last census in the last 10 years, 100 percent of the population growth in Georgia have been communities of color. That when you look at the The average age in the state, the state is becoming not only more diverse, but younger. And we're seeing that demographic shift all across the country, which is going to demand that's going to demand a different kind of political reality and a different kind of politics, a body politic. And I think we're seeing we're starting to see some some of the fruits of that labor. and We're seeing some of the uh, and, and, and I don't see the Republicans actually responding in any way that makes me think that they're going to be smart enough, humble enough or even just have enough integrity to really take those things in consideration. And
0: finally, interestingly, the victory of Raphael Warnock, um, who becomes the first black Democrat to be elected to the Senate by a former state of the Confederacy that happened last time, but now as a full term senator, um, dethrones what some call the other president, Joe. President Joe Manchin in Washington, D.C., actually Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, because now the Democrats don't need all 50 votes now that it's 51 to 49 to pass all legislation. An interesting effect that it's going to have in Washington, D.C.,
5: Absolutely. I think it's a game changer for a number of reasons, for the reason that you just stated. I think one of the most disappointing things that as a voting rights activist and advocate uh, for me in this last in this last um, election cycle has been the failure of the Democrats to pass voting rights legislation, that we need voting rights legislation. You know what we saw in Georgia when we saw that was like, well, there were high turnouts. The truth of the matter is we still had to put an enormous amount of resources and time and people power to actually try to offset as much as possible of the voter suppression. But the truth of the matter is, while I'm happy that we won, I still maintain we cannot continue, we can't out-organize voter suppression. That it is unsustainable to continue to see the goalposts be moved, and then we're we're responsible for responding to that. So we're going to have to have federal legislation. I think Warnock has been a champion for voting rights. He has been consistently, and so we need him in the Senate to be able to push back on that and i think having that extra vote gives some more leverage room for, to, for the democrats to really take that up seriously i think the second thing is also around the committee assignments because of this 51th vote now the democrats have more space to really make committee assignments which means that they can actually prioritize some of the things that we want to see as progressives we want to see in the state of georgia the minimum wage is $5.15 an hour no one can live off that we need to see a fair wage for people that when they're going to work that they're able to pay for take care of their families, that we want to see the expansion, you know, of health care and health care access. And so I think that having that one person, that, that extra vote, that extra leverage will also give the opportunity for the Democrats to actually have more leverage of prioritizing the things that we want in terms of their committee assignments, to be able also to be able to get um, get judges through to elect and to really be able to have more room and space within their, within their caucus around uh, what policies that they will prioritize. And just to be
0: clear what Latasha Brown is talking about isn't because it was 50-50 each committee was evenly divided now democrats will have the majority of every committee in the US Senate Latasha Brown I want to thank you so much for being with us co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund when we come back death by policy crisis in the Arizona desert. A new investigation by Futuro Media shows how U.S. border policies force migrants seeking refuge into some of the deadliest terrain in the southern United States. Stay with us. TV Wonder, a Raphael Warnock supporter. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn now to a new investigation by Futuro Media that shows how U.S. border policies have created a deadly funnel that forces migrants seeking refuge into some of the deadliest terrain in the country, including the Sonoran Desert in southern Arizona— the investigation aired Friday on Latino USA called Death by Policy, hosted by the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Mariana Josa. This is how it begins.
2: Dear listener, a content warning. The next few minutes are of a 911 call with a person in distress. At about 11.30 on a Monday morning in July of 2021, A woman in southern Arizona calls 911 from her cell phone. She's in the Sonora Desert. She's all by herself. And she's lost. The woman is put on hold. That's because she's a migrant crossing the border from Mexico to the United States. Then the dispatcher follows protocol and transfers her call from the local sheriff's office in Pima County, Arizona to the US Border Patrol.
4: Okay. So I have a Mexican phone number. Um,
2: she's begging the dispatcher to send help. Eventually, she's found and picked up by Border Patrol, but calls like this happen all the time in Southern Arizona. In some cases like this, the lucky outcome actually is the caller being located, then detained by Border Patrol and ultimately deported. But many other times border crossers are never rescued by Border Patrol and they succumb to the blistering heat in the Sonora Desert. As of November of 2021, Humane Borders, a local organization, has counted nearly 4,000 people whose remains have been recovered after dying, trying to cross this vast stretch of land. Many more have died and have yet to be found.
0: The opening to Death by Policy, a new Latino USA podcast with Futuro Investigates. The report also looks at the work of volunteer groups that go to the most dangerous areas to search for missing people as the death toll at the border continues to rise. In this clip from Death by Policy, we meet the Blue Armadillos, a volunteer search and rescue team along the U.S.-Mexico border for people who've lost their way in the Border Patrol's Tucson sector. Again, this is Mariana Josa speaking with a volunteer name Gonzalo.
2: The Blue Armadillo, say the number of people who reach out asking for help to find their missing loved ones is often just overwhelming. poquito Paz esa familia que está desesperada buscando a su familiar. Gonzalo tells us that groups like theirs are often the last and sometimes the only resort for desperate families who say they've called Border Patrol, they've called the Mexican Consulate, they've called the police, and they've gotten nowhere.
0: Si sí, ya pues, si se encontró con vida, que bueno, gracias a Dios. Pero si se encontró muerto, por lo
2: menos regresa a su país. ¿Saben a dónde está? The reality is conditions on this stretch of the border are so extreme that a person can die from heat exhaustion in just days or even hours. But Gonzalo says it's important to go out and do the search anyway, even if only to help get a missing person's remains home.
0: For more, we're joined by Mariana Rosa, who you just heard. She's just won the Pulitzer Prize. She's founder of Futuro Media, host of Latino USA, um, including their new investigative units podcast, Death by Policy, and what we're going to talk about soon, a podcast series called USA versus Garcia Luna. Um, She's also co-host of the podcast In the Thick. Her memoir, Once I Was You, has just been published as an adapted edition for young Readers. We are also joined by Penny Lea Ramirez, Emmy Award winning investigative journalist. She's the executive producer of Futuro Investigates and the co host of their first podcast series, USA versus Garcia Luna. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Maria, let's begin with you. Once again, congratulations on your remarkable series and your Pulitzer Prize. Um, let's talk about this new production that you are doing um, Futuro Investigates, this investigative series, and particularly Death by Policy.
2: Amy, it's great to be back with you, and hey, Juan, as well. It's great to be with you and with my co executive producer, uh, Benny Day Ramirez. Look, um, you know, at the highest levels in the journalism, and, and Amy, you know, and I love to say this to you and to Juan, I am inspired by the both of you. You both have just, you know, done this thing where we've taken control of the means of production, as it were, and said, we have voice, we have power, we have agency. So that's why Futuro Media is created in 2010, just going out on a limb, just kind of scary times. And Right. At this point now, we won the Pulitzer. And the next kind of evolution in terms of being a journalist of conscience in the United States is to create an investigative unit, right? To really take the power that we have and hold those in power accountable. And, you know, I make this joke like the movie, I am the captain now. I like to say I'm 60 Minutes now because I learned how to do investigative journalism and was inspired to do investigative journalism by 60 Minutes. But it's a different media landscape now, and we are we're able to do that same kind of work with our particular perspective. That's why it's so important that this is the only investigative unit run by two Latinas, uh, Latina journalists in the United States, myself and Benilei Ramirez. Why? Um, why is the first report that we decide to do about death on the border? You know, some people, our colleagues even said this is an old story. There's nothing to report. And actually, it's more intense than what you even said in your promo. It's not so much that the Border Patrol is just funneling people into dangerous parts of the desert. That's bad enough. But it's actually that every single policy that they are enacting is actually leading to more death. For example, eh, they disperse people now. They disperse when groups are crossing the border, many of them groups of refugees, before the border patrol would round them up, that's their language, and manage them this way. Now, they disperse, they send helicopters, ATVs, cars, dogs, horses, etc., to disperse the group. That means that somebody is now alone in the desert, separated, maybe with a sprained ankle, the chances of that person dying are higher. Um, And this is just one example uh, of, of the policies that they're creating. By the way, both Republicans and Democrats, a pox on both of their houses. Sadly, you know, Amy, it's it's not going to be a surprise to you and Juan that, you know, the Border Patrol, uh, once they gave us a, a ride along, but then after that, they wouldn't speak with us. The Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, would not speak with us. President Joe Biden would not speak with us. It, we asked to speak to President Obama, former President Clinton, former uh, President Bush. They wouldn't speak to us. So, for me, the big question is, if the United States is creating policies that are leading to death, who holds the United States accountable if they are not participants in the International Court of, Tribunal of Human Rights? And this is where we are at. In the world's greatest democracy, we have, we have policies that lead to people's death, and they know that that is the outcome they want. So what does that mean for us as a society?
4: And I'd like to ask uh, uh, Penny Ramirez, in terms of uh, uh, you, as part of your series, you go through the devil's highway. Uh, could you set, talk about what the devil's highway is? And also this, it's been now decades that the United States has been having this policy of actually forcing migrants to go into the desert by by putting up their, the, their main border wall construction and in the major, around the major cities and uh, actually making it more and more difficult for people to cross so that they're forced into the desert and then end up, so many of them, uh, perishing.
0: Penny, I think you have to unmute yourself. Uh, Maria, why don't we put that question to you while we fix Penny's audio?
2: The the Devil's Highway is one of the most dangerous stretches of um, of, of transportation in the United States. Um, here's let me let me put this so that people understand because you know what you're going to hear on the mainstream media is. Oh, there's a crisis at the border. There is is a crisis of humanity at the border. There are not tens of thousands of people trying to break down and break into the United States. That is not the crisis. The crisis is the over-militarization of the border, writ large. Part of that is the border wall. Juan, I don't know the last time, or Amy, the last time you were down at the border wall, but you know, it used to be that it's 15 feet high it's these massive slabs of steel that have four inches in between so you cannot put your head through they just went down and increased the border wall to 30 feet high what's crazy is that the border wall is not a wall it is not continuous so you have i think it's uh, 19 miles but you have 21 openings in those 19 miles precisely leading into the devil's highway. Now, the thing is, is that, Juan, you know, if people cross it, if people are in the desert hiking, there's a chance that you might perish. But but the kinds of deaths that we're seeing now are deaths that are entirely avoidable. They do not need to be happening. And that's, I think, the most just disheartening part of all of this is that Every single one of these deaths does not need to be happening. And, you know, I used to say that I was obsessed with this story because I've been crossing the border since I was born, because I was born in Mexico. Um, I'm no longer obsessed with this story. I'm haunted. And as I wrote in my essay, I want every single one of us to be haunted as well. The way we are haunted in this country by so many deaths that we have seen their murders on camera May he rest in peace, George Floyd. These deaths, though, are happening and we never see them. And that's intentional. We never we can never see them. You can never. When have you seen the Border Patrol filmed? So this is the reason why we chose to make this our first investigative piece to shed light on the largest law enforcement agency in the United States of America. That is majority Latino and Latina that has very, if any, oversight, and that continues to have their budgets increased, even though we are showing that those budget increases are not leading to saving lives the way they say they are.
0: This is a clip from Death by Policy when Mariana Nojosa speaks with Elena Gonzalez, whose mother, Maria, left to come to the U.S. from Veracruz, Mexico.
2: Elena's mom tried to cross through a known path in Texas. Elena waited and waited and waited for her mom's next phone call.
3: haber pasado algo por la razón de que mi mamá no viene, no, no, no aparece.
2: As months passed, Elena became more and more desperate. She didn't know who to call or how to ask for someone to look for her mom. Como una persona se puede desaparecer así del mundo. Elena wondered, how could her mother? disappear just like that que mis esperanzas iban cayendo poco a poco She began to lose hope that she'd ever know what happened to her mother
0: So María um you said you didn't get to speak with Biden. You didn't get to speak with Bush, Obama. They wouldn't speak to you. But have things changed? When did you do this interview, under President Trump or under President Biden? And have things changed and also address the blue armadillos? Yeah. So we
2: did this interview under President Biden. Uh, have things changed? No, not not really, not qualitatively. Um, As far as I'm concerned, and I have said this more than once to the Biden administration, the crisis of humanity on this border has given President Biden more than one opportunity to say it stops here on my watch. I will no longer allow the Border Patrol to exist where you are trained to be on horses with whips against black refugees, Haitian refugees. I will no longer uh, support and endorse a border patrol that lies to refugees and says, we're going to take you to Miami and then you deport them to Haiti. Uh, So multiple opportunities for this president actually to break, to break with the entire narrative of this crisis of being overrun by migrants and refugees at the borders that is not happening. And this is an opportunity for this president to say, we're shutting down the border patrol we're going to re, we're going to redo this entire thing because this is the largest law enforcement agency in the United States of America the number of of abuses that we document and by the way the number of suicides of the border patrol the number of officers who are um charged with corruption the border patrol the whole entire policy behind mm-hmm. it is an opportunity for this administration to say, no más, se acabó. By the way, you know what that would do. That would guarantee his re-election. It would absolutely guarantee his re-election because it, immigration has been the centerpiece of, of the political debate, and he's done, frankly, nothing new. Um, your second question, I can't remember it. Blue blue re- the, oh, the blue armadillos, the groups and how important the they are. So here's what happens, Amy and Juan. The Border Patrol has all of these, bu- these huge budgets and ATVs and helicopters and all of this, but somehow they can't seem to find people who are desperate. Like they did find the woman at the beginning of the show, but the number of calls that we scanned and decided not to run where the outcome is not the same is extraordinary. So you would think that the... Board, that the Border Patrol, with all of these um, with these agents, with everything, that they would actually be out combing the desert at all times. The desert is huge. They don't do that. You know, I've been to this border area a lot. It's not like you see Border Patrol everywhere, kind of like, no, they're not. So what does that mean? That means that human beings who get lost on the border, who are human beings like you, me, me, Juan, our families there, but for the grace of God, go I in this desert, in this extraordinary heat. And so you have people like the blue armadillos, many of them um, who came in the same way to the United States. They most of them are based in California. They drive twice a month from California into Arizona, and they themselves go into the desert to look for people, to look for remains. They'll get the phone call, they'll get the coordinates of the last that time this person was for, heard from, and they will go out to do this work. And you know the money that they need to do this because they're all volunteer? They raise it by selling tamales or by giving of their own salaries. Many of them work in construction in Southern California. You have that, that group, and they're actually doing the humanitarian work, but you have the Border Patrol taking credit for that. And saying that they're saving lives and saying that they are out there, you know, going in and protecting lives. And what we show on, um, in the piece is that uh, they have these beacons, these light beacons that they say is like a major part of their life-saving uh, efforts on the border. If you've been to this part of the uh, Oregon National Pipe, Oregon Cactus National Pipe, uh, you, you know that there's, it's vast And these beacons are a tiny little light that you're supposed to see from miles away. And then you get there and you push a red button and that's it. There's no water. There's no nothing there. So the blue armadillos are not putting beacons like they're in the middle of nowhere and saying, hey, come to us. They, on their own volition and because of their humanity, which is what I hope returns to this country, They are the ones that are doing that work. Maria,
0: we want to get to your second series that's so astounding. We're talking to the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Mariana Josa, winning. uh, She is founder of Futuro Media. And we will be joined uh, by Penile Ramirez, who is executive producer of this new unit, Futuro Investigates. Stay with us. By Gutierrez. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we speak with Maria Nojosa, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, founder of Futuro Media, host of Latino USA, co-host of the new investigative unit's five-part podcast series, USA versus Garcia Luna, which is years in the making and begins this Friday. Also with us, Penny Leo Ramirez, Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist, executive producer, of Futuro Investigates, who co-hosts the new series that looks at Mexico's former Secretary of Public Security, Garcia Luna, who will soon become the highest-ranking Mexican official ever to face trial in the United States. This is a clip from the first episode.
3: So what's really striking about Garcia Luna is that he came from a very unremarkable background, but he was able to rise to power very, very quickly. Garcia Luna is now in his 50s. He was born in Mexico City in 1968. And in the late 80s, when he was 21 years old, he entered the CISEN. The CISEN is the Center for Investigation on National Security, which is the equivalent to the CIA in Mexico. He started as a security agent, which means basically a low-ranking spy. But from there, in just about a decade, in the year 2000, the guy becomes the head of the Federal Investigative Agency, so the equivalent to the director of the FBI. And just six years after that, he was appointed Secretary of Public Security by then President Felipe Calderon. This was the highest point of his career.
0: That's Penny Lee Ramirez, the executive producer of Futura Investigates, co host of this five part podcast series, joining us with Mariana Josa. These two executive producers, one Cuban American, one Mexican American, um, bringing us these series of investigations. Penny, you have been working on this story for a decade. Talk about the significance of this trial that's about to take place in the United States.
3: Well, we decided to do this series uh, because Garcia Luna was a close ally to the U.S. for a long period of time. As we just heard, he was part of the Mexican government. He was a high-ranking official in the Mexican government. But at the same time, Mexico was receiving a lot of money, more than $3 billion from the U.S. in aid to help the country to prevent the drugs from coming to the U.S. And during all that time, according to the current Accusation here in New York. He was helping Joaquin El Chapo Guzman and the Sinaloa cartel to smuggle drugs, especially cocaine, into the U.S., mostly to Chicago and New York. So this person was at the same time, according to the accusation, working for the Mexican government, working for the Sinaloa cartel, and cooperating with uh, U.S. agencies, especially the DEA.
4: I wanted to ask uh, Maria, because we have uh, only a few minutes uh, left. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, a cur- current issue uh, b- beside this uh, case is that we're now look we're now hearing that there's a possibility in the lame duck session of Congress for a bipartisan immigration reform bill. Now we of course we've heard this story numerous times in the past over the last 20 years or so, but Senators Kirsten Cinema and Tom Tillis have a draft framework of the, of this bill that would include a path to citizenship for the uh, 2 million people known as the dreamers but also Funds, according to the Washington Post, a big investment in removal operation of migrants uh, and also border security. I'm wondering what you're hearing about it and your reaction. Well, my first reaction is, of course, that always it's going to be tied to this
2: question of border security. And as I've just said, the problem at the border is the over militarization of the border. So they do not need more money because we just showed you what's happening with all of the money. The Border Patrol does not need more money. And the border is. Secure, what's not secure are people's lives down there. So, next thing, Juan, is that we say in Mexican Spanish, hasta no ver, no creer. Until I see it, I won't believe it. And, you know, I think so much about the psyche, the mental health, the emotional health of our so-called dreamers who are no longer young. They are here waiting to buy homes and cars and send their own kids to college in this country. And they're stuck in this situation. And they we have all been with the expectation that something is going to happen, that something is going to happen, that it's going to, and every time there's this expectation and then the, ball, the, the, the bubble is burst. Immigrants and refugees in this country have been thrown under the bus by Republicans and Democrats time and time again. Why do we do the work that we do at Futuro and Futuro Investigate? It is to centralize, center the humanity of these people. Entonces, I hope, that the reform comes through. It should, it should not be piecemeal. That's my problem. It should have never been piecemeal. There should be, there should be entire immigration reform. People, families should all be given, be given the path to citizenship, and they should find a humane way to manage what this country says is an essential part of who they are, immigrants and immigrant flows. So hopefully, Juan, hopefully, but, you know, while I'm feeling a, a bit more optimistic about our democracy this morning, in fact, quite more optimistic, uh, the history has shown that that immigrants and refugees will, again, be toyed with. They will be used as political fodder. They will be we, – we become the threat um, of this country. And many of us are just tired of it, which is why we want to change the narrative entirely. But definitely – After all of that, be sure you go and listen to USA versus García Luna, because it is mind-blowing, as we say. It's true crime meets telenovela. (laughs) It's so crazy we had to bring out a bottle of tequila, because there was just no way to understand this story unless we were able to have a little tequila along. Well, with
0: Maria Nojosa, so we want to thank you for being with us, as well as Penny Le Ramirez. Uh, your series are amazing. Uh, we will link to the new investigative podcast, Death by Policy in USA versus Garcia Luna. And congratulations on your memoir for young people once I was you, Maria. That does it for our show, Juan. I can't wait for Friday. Juan Gonzalez is speaking at CUNY, City University of New York School of Labor and Urban Studies, at 3P. P.m. You can check our website for the address. And also on Monday at 6.30 p.m. at the CUNY Graduate Center. We want to thank you, Juan, for these remarkable speeches. Also, a new Spanish edition of Juan's classic book, Harvest of Empire, History of Latinos in America, has just come out. Check it out. That does it for our show. Special thanks to Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guster. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Democracy Now!